This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys! Here we go again. You know, you really should be kinder to your neighbors. You never know when you might need to borrow some sugar. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. Uh, I am your host, James Hamrick, and with me is my co-host, Gabe Green. What's going on? Hi. I'm okay. I'll <laughs> oh, get over it. Uh, yeah, I'm functioning at about an hour of sleep right now, so last night, yep. So, Ooh, okay, well, never mind. You can sulk a little bit, that's all. <laughs> I hope that the things I have to say here will be at least semi-coherent. I cannot guarantee anything, though. <laughs> all right, um, so we are very, very close to the end of our of our journey through the MCU. Uh, just down to, th- yeah, including this is just three movies now. When did we start this? Was it, like, summer last year, I think, or earlier, or spring? Yeah, it was because we we done we did Iron Man in person for yeah. God, uh, when you were down for Godzilla. It's been, it's been forever, like I so. completely forgotten what it was like to talk, to talk about other movies. Uh, but here we we are nearing the end, and we're talking about Captain Marvel this week. Uh, before we get into that, I want to see you guys if you enjoy the show, to please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating, review, and subscribe while you're at it. Uh, it would just be very helpful, help other people find the show, and we would definitely appreciate it. And also, I like us on Facebook to keep up to date with all the latest episodes and to give feedback that can end up on the show. And speaking of said feedback, I asked on Facebook and Twitter what our listeners thought about Captain Marvel. On Facebook, Jed said, I think I liked Jude Law's character far more than I was supposed to. Was very willing to give it a shot and wanted to enjoy it, but left the cinema feeling very meh. Uh, That is a criticism that I'll have more to say about because I do think that there's a a shortcoming there. I do think he's he's presented as far more likable than he should have been. Becky said, uh, and this is a long comment. I but, feel like she's kind of getting some stuff off her chest about <laughs> probably me in particular. <laughs> well, then all the more reason to give her a platform here. Fair enough. An origin story that took a different path than most by choosing to focus on character revealment and empowerment over development, which is fine because characters don't always need a change. Instead, it was about her finding who she is. She became more independent and found a purpose, no longer trying to seek the approval of Yonrog or fit into the parameters that were trying to make her fit. She leaned into what made her different instead of restraining. Her arc was a subtle, internal one, but important. In case a certain host still thinks she didn't have characterization <laughs> from the beginning, she's a spunky... Uh, pilot warrior who feels like she is being held back. Despite the toughness and determination, I saw someone who is using cockiness to cover a deep insecurity. Going from that opening training scene to I don't need to prove myself to you is actually huge. I think she's mildly mixing up some of my arguments with some other people's. Like this, this all this stuff went down like like you know a year and a half ago when the movie came out. Uh, but yeah, I will have a lot to say about a lot of that stuff. Um, Samuel said it was fun but kind of forgettable after that. I defended it against the haters who were judging it, uh, judging it prior for political reasons, etc. But it ended up being just a just okay movie for largely unrelated reasons. I think they made it hard to develop her character, and they found it hard to strike the right tone. I haven't rewatched it in the uh, since seeing it in the theaters. Drew said, "Love Goose, but the rest isn't that good for me. It's currently fighting Thor: The Dark World and Incredible Hulk for the title of weakest MCU movie." The Incredible Hulk does not belong in that grouping. Uh, <laughs> Jennifer said. Uh, we saw Captain Marvel after we saw Endgame. We hated Captain Marvel's character in Endgame, but watching her, watching her movie helped us understand her character. Definitely not the best Marvel movie, but we didn't hate it. My kids love it. 
Shane said it was entertaining while I, uh, while I was watching it, but I can't say that I remember that much about it now. And then on Twitter, Mike at Jarek said, I knew little of the character, so as an introduction, it was perfect. It was a perfectly fine MCU offering. Loved Goose and the not so subtle plot twist. Uh, I don't. I'll get it later, but I don't get the Goose stuff. The Goose love. Okay, thank you. Goose <laughs> is overrated, and the the eye patch reveal. I. I I, I am not nearly as down on this movie as a lot of these commenters are, but I abhor that scene. <laughs> All right, so like, getting into some of the, uh, the production of this film, going way back to the character's origin, uh, the character of Captain Marvel was created in 1967 in uh, Marvel Superheroes number 12 uh, from Stan Lee and artist Gene Colan. Uh, Carol Danvers, however, was not the original Captain Marvel, but rather a Cree named Marvel with the pseudonym Walter Lawson. Uh, Carol Danvers was introduced in the next issue as a side character uh, in the 70s. She became her own character, Miss Marvel, and she didn't assume the title of Captain Marvel until 2012, by which point the title had been passed, you know, had passed through several different characters. So as far as the film's development, uh, way back in 2013, uh, Marvel had begun working on plans for a Miss Marvel Car- Carol Danvers film. Um, uh, an official announcement uh, of development was made in 2014. It was originally slated for a summer of 2018 release date. Uh, Joss Whedon had wanted to introduce the character in the final scene of Avengers Age of Ultron, um, but Marvel didn't want to introduce the character at that moment because they wanted to, to you know, figure out what they wanted to do with her and cast her. They, they didn't want to you know, preempt the casting um, just for that one final scene. In early 2015, uh, Meg Lafave of Inside Out and the Good Dinosaur and Nicole Perlman, who is a Marvel staff writer and the original writer of Guardians of the Galaxy, were hired to write the script for the film. Marvel had meetings with uh, Ava DuVarney about both this and Black Panther, but she passed on both to go make uh, Wrinkle in Time, which that turned out great for her. In summer of 2016, in uh, what I feel like is a pretty rare move for Marvel, uh, Brie Larson was cast as Carol Danvers before before they even had like you know anything near a completed script or even directors at the time. What year did she win her Oscar? Was that... Um, I don't remember. Was that 2015? That was for Room, right? Yes. Yeah, it was in 2016, so I guess they were kind of really trying to catch her after her hot streak right there. It wasn't until April of 2017, almost a year later, that the directing duo Anna Bodine and Ryan Fleck uh, from such films as Half Nelson and Mississippi Grind uh, were hired to direct the film. Foggy said he wanted their uh, their ability to create very character-driven stories. Later in 2017, Geneva Robertson Dorrit uh, was brought in as, as a writer. Uh, Perlman and Lafave had since moved on to other projects. Uh, the only other big thing uh, she's done as a writer was uh, 2018's Tomb Raider, which is a film that I quite like. Mm, very underrated. Uh, so uh, Bowden Fleck also wrote on the film. Uh, they, along with uh, Robertson Dorrit, are the final credit writers with a. Uh, Perlman and Lafave only getting story by credits. Uh, but along with it, we also know that the writing duo, uh, Joe Shrapnel and Anna Waterhouse, did some uncredited writing, writing on the film, um, as well as uh, Jack Schaefer um, from such prestige, prestigious works as uh, Olaf's Frozen Adventure mm. and last year's Hustle with uh, <laughs> Rebel Wilson and Hathaway. She's also one of the writers on the upcoming, upcoming Black Widow and the showrunner and creator of WandaVision. So, so as we've already mentioned, uh, Brie Larson was cast much earlier in the process than uh, most of these MCU films. Uh, Danvers 13-year-old version is played by uh, up-and-coming actress McKenna Grace. Uh, Talos, leader of the Skrulls, is played by Ben Mendelsohn, who had previously worked with the directing duo in Mississippi Grind. And as usual, he's pretty much the best thing in the movie he's in. Um... 
Jude Law plays Danvers' Cree mentor uh, and the secret villain, Yonrog. Uh, Dewanda Wise was initially cast to play Danvers' best friend and fellow pilot, Maria Rambeau, but she was forced to drop out shortly uh, before filming due to scheduling conflicts, and she was replaced by Lashana Lynch. Uh, Annette Benning plays the uh, the role of Dr. Lawson slash Marvell, as well as a version of the Cree Supreme Intelligence that uh, presents itself to uh, Danvers. Gemma Chan plays the Kree soldier Minerva, um, and there's a number of actors reprising their roles of, uh, but as younger versions of themselves. Uh, Jack Sam Jackson plays his 1990s self, and this is the best the de aging has ever looked. Like if if you had taken a screenshot, like if you had just taken a like a screenshot of this and said, "Hey, this is from a 90s movie," I'd be like, "Oh yeah, like I can tell, obviously." It, it's it's flawless here, and. Uh, Funnily enough, he had he and um, Larson had just worked on Kong Skull Island just before. Uh, Clark Gregg returns as Agent Coulson. Uh, his doesn't look as good. He's got he's got some of that like whenever they tried to de-age Patrick Wilson in the X Men series look, kind of like that shiny gleam to him that just doesn't work. Robert De Niro in the Irishman kind of look. Hey, shut up, okay? <laughs> shut it. All right, that movie's a mass. That move. Oh, okay. So. Javon Hansu reprises his role as Korath from Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, and Lee Pace is horrifically underused in a monologueless role as Ronan the Accuser. Yeah. That's a shame. Uh, and then we get Stan Lee's cameo, which I he he's learning his lines for Mallrat. I wish that this was his last one. Like, Endgames is kind of fun or funny. It's not one of the better ones to me. And this would have been the perfect, just like that nice smile. I, I like that one. Uh, so the movie was shot in early, in early 2018 uh, in and around L.A. Uh, with various locations around California, as well as a bit in Louisiana. Uh, ben Davis served as the director of photography, making this his fourth MCU film after Guardians of the Galaxy, Age of Ultron, and Doctor Strange. He's currently filming The Eternals. Um, he seems to be the guy that Marvel likes to stick with new new. Uh, new directors coming into the MCU. Um, and on a, a totally separate note, uh, he's the father of Roman Griffin Davis, who starred in uh, Jojo Rabbit from Taika Waititi, also starring uh, Scarlett Johansson. So hmm. it's like a whole Marvel mess going on in there. Speaking of which, you just saw that, didn't you? Yes, I did. Seeing it made me miss our, like, what have you been watching this week segment that we had on Underrated, because I would love to just, talk about jojo rabbit and let's do this let's talk about that it's had me crying at my desk at random points during my day just because <laughs> i think about it and i have I'm, a lot more to say about the, that film than this one. Oh, and to retroactively place it on our previous list it's at my number three of the decade i really really loved it so bump everything from three of the decade yeah. of the year or sorry not of the decade of the year of 2019 so take every, take number three and everything behind it and bump it down and slot jojo there listeners very worthy rating. Um, so the uh, post-credit scene was directed by the Russo brothers during the filming of Endgame, uh, which actually took place before Captain Marvel's filming. Um, so for the de-aging effects on Jackson, uh, they said they primarily used the film 187 for reference, as well as Die Hard with a Vengeance and uh, Loaded Weapon 1. They were bringing him from age 70 to roughly 45. I still don't believe he's 70. Uh, no, that guy looks incredible. Um the de-aging was handled by Lola VFX, who has done most of the, the previous MCU de-aging um, in Civil War and Ant-Man, as, as well as things like Tiny Steve. Uh, their name, like doing the production, you see their name a lot in all of this. Yeah, they, they do a lot of the de-aging kind of, if just when they're changing people, uh, you know, be old age de-aging or 
Tiny Steve. Like they do a lot of that stuff. Um, since this was the first film after Stanley's death, they created a modified Marvel logo made up of Stanley uh, MCU cameos. That makes me so uh, happy. For the film score, yeah, oh, it was beautiful. For the film score, uh, they hired Turkish composer Pinar Toprak, uh, making her the first female composer for an MCU film. She came. Uh, she actually campaigned for the job, even going so far as to hire a seventy-piece orchestra herself for her demo. That reminds me of uh, when Kevin Kiner had hired his own orchestra to compose those last moments for season five ending of Clone Wars. I really like it whenever, oh, yeah. whenever like they go that far for it. Um, following the release of the film, a rumor began spreading that Marvel was unhappy with her score and had replaced her with Michael Giacchino. Uh, Giacchino actually responded to this with a tweet saying, I did not write the score for Captain Marvel. Pinar wrote a beautiful theme and an inspiring score for the film. Uh, while working on Spidey 2, I was asked to check out Captain Marvel and offer my thoughts, which I did and ended up working on a few cues with Pinar. Bottom line is Pinar Toprak is a fabulous composer and certainly doesn't need me. Which like, I guess pretty much means that they were not happy with her score. And, I mean... At least to a degree. To a degree. Um, but I don't know. Like, his, this, uh, this idea that like Disney and... Feige is like they're just gonna constantly make use of whoever they have there. This is like, I don't know. It kind of makes sense. I mean, it's, it's obvious like he didn't like replace her and record a new score. Like when that happens, they they credit they obviously had you know required by all the guild rules to credit the person. But and I, I think the reason that I'm also just not convinced is because if they have been willing to do that, they they they've never seemed like a like. Scores have been a huge priority for them. Anytime they're great, they seem like they're born more out of like desires on like a director to actually get something like that, or the composer themselves going above and beyond like what would be expected. Scores just don't seem to well, be. That, a, it, it could have been the directors asking for it as uh, well. Possibly, but at the same time, I don't know if they're. Uh, well, maybe I need to rewatch their films. I don't. Did Did you get a chance to listen to any of the score? I have not. Actually. I have some thoughts on it. <laughs> Uh, the film was released on March 8th, 2019. So uh, one thing we should probably talk about real quick is like the climate going into Captain Marvel because it was it was wild. Do you, do you remember that? Oh, yeah. This like the Internet was a wasteland. Yeah, I feel like the, the you know, the, that hateful, spiteful man child contingent of the Internet that had mobilized uh, after. After The Last Jedi, then they attack Solo and then this, they kind of just like latched onto this film. Like Brie Larson says rather dumb things about the critical reception of of uh, Wrinkle in Time. But then they like they took her comments and then like twisted them and applied them like she was saying, you know, that Brie Larson didn't want men reviewing Captain Marvel and that men shouldn't even go see a movie. Like just like, stuff that she never said and like she was talking about a different movie. Like they just. Like, there was just so many just outright lies and nonsense swirling about. And it was just, if, if you remember just the, the craziness around the last, pretty much like the last two years of Star Wars discourse, like that kind of latched itself onto Captain Marvel for the last couple of months, you know, leading up to its release. And it was just crazy. Um, so I remember like myself going to this film, being a Marvel fan, I was like, and, and like, and there was also a a lot like parallel to that, there was a lot of people just saying like this. This movie doesn't look good. It looks really boring. So like, as the Marvel guys, like, I was like, you know, their trailers aren't always great. Look, look at Ant Man's trailers. It wasn't. They weren't great. Look at Doctor Strange's trailer. So for me, I was kind of like on the defense of going to the film. And so you know, speaking of that, James, uh, what what was your first experience with this film, and has it changed at all in the last year and a half? No, uh, like I had 
I, I wasn't super hyped for this film, but I was also not like down on it either. I, I found myself more on the defensive than like attacking. Well, I, I definitely never said anything negative ab- about it coming out. I was looking forward to it just because it's it's a Marvel movie and I, I want all of these to be good and I have fun with them. Um, and uh, the going after Larson to me was just a really stupid thing to do because like just just as the Star Wars community has like distance itself from the last jedi which i'm like well of course like this was proof that these franchises could still be fresh and inventive and critically well received and like we're saying no thank you like oh man you're embarrassing the whole community i felt very similar to here when they're like actually we don't want lars i'm like gosh she just won an oscar <laughs> like let's no what are we doing why are we looking so stupid mm-hmm. like we need to embrace this kind of talent being brought in and this was before the movie came out so there wasn't any evidence actual evidence it was just they didn't like her as a person yeah and like there was all of these things of just like you know like, oh she hasn't smiled once in the trailer and blah blah, blah. like oh this is <laughs> this is frankly embarrassing and i want nothing to do with it so it's it's weird thinking about my anticipation for this film divorced of all that because I I I don't know how many conversation exist how many conversations existed about this movie that were divorced from that so I was just going in hoping for it to be good um, and I'm not nearly as down on it as uh, as you know like I'll just, you know a lot of the people who commented are it's definitely not one of the best like not at all um, but. Uh, I remember when it ended, I walked out thinking like that was that was pretty fun. That like that was a fun time. I had a fun enough time with it. There were enough like sequences that I'm like, oh yeah, that happened. And then this is like, it was overall pretty memorable. I I walked away with a very similar feeling that as I as I had with Ant Man and the Wasp, which which is you know like I don't anticipate remembering a lot of this, but what I am gonna remember is like this vague sense of fun that I had with it. And you know that's that's fine. And rewatching it for this episode. Um, my feelings didn't change. I just like the, the memories of what I had fun with became more clear, obviously, because I was saying, I was like, oh yeah, this part is kind of fun. Like, oh yeah, this, I like this dynamic. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's towards the bottom for me. Um, I guess spoilers, it it won't be super high up for me, but I like, I like my time with it. And I think it it has enough things that are, are unique to it for it to stand out to some extent for me. Yeah, so uh, as I said, I went into this film on the defensive. You know, Marvel rarely fails us, and like even their lesser films are usually a lot of fun. And just walking out of this film, I was, I was just completely ambivalent toward it. It did really nothing for me almost the entire time. I remember just being completely bored for like the last half hour, and. It was the only it's the only MCU film since Thor the Dark World that I did not see twice in theaters. I just it's like I, I didn't even give it a star rating. I didn't even you know rank it just because I, I usually don't feel comfortable about movies like this unless I see them twice. And I just could not summon the interest to see it twice. So seeing the second time I saw it, it was for this podcast and pretty much my thoughts are the same as they were coming out of the theater. This movie it exists and that's about it. <laughs> um, so yeah, just to, I guess to not start on such a negative level, uh, James, what, what are some things that you enjoy about this movie? Uh, so I'll start on actually my favorite thing about it, which is uh, 
Talos, because <laughs> Ben Mendelsohn is almost always going to be the best part of any movie he's in. The movie of theirs that he was in, Mississippi Grind, the movie is good. It's not amazing, but it is very good. And he is phenomenal in it. He is genuinely fantastic in that movie. Um, and so I was excited just to be able to see him again here. And uh, I thought he just, he brings a sense of fun. It's like, it's crazy seeing like the... Um, just the incredible range he has with just the, the the sleazy bureaucracy of Rogue One. And then there's like, I don't know, there's something really fun and charming about him here. Uh, one of, like maybe my favorite line of the whole movie is like, I should have written it down. I think, you know, like, like it, it takes skill and dare I say it, talent. Like, just or why would I become a file cabinet? Or even just like, like is this kind of turbulence normal? And just the, like that quiet head shake, like... He's, he's so much <laughs> fun. I feel like he's in a different film. Like we're, so much of the movie and, and the, the performances are very rote and stiff. And he's just kind of goofy and weird and unpredictable. <laughs> just kind of coasting around the edges of this movie. Like he's, he's peeking in from something else that's much, much more lively. And like he's able to just kind of escape the rather <laughs> the dullness of everything else around him. Yeah, he's he's definitely the most fun. Like, I mean, it it doesn't make so much sense for his character, considering his motivations are to find this long lost family, and you know, his he's currently going through a, an attempt at genocide and all that. But and he's able to act through about like six inches of really intense makeup. Yeah, and uh, he's just super fun. And even whenever it's just regular Ben Mendelsohn, I love him. Like, I I don't need these, but they do complete the look. Don't you agree? Like, he's just so much fun in the role and i really hope that uh that the post credit scene the most pre the most recent post credit scene is is promising more from him because i'm i'm <laughs> yeah. so ready to see more of this guy i totally forgot about that yeah i hope so as well um just hit him and current nick fury together yeah <laughs> much angrier more more edgy fury <laughs> yeah so we just gotta pull the band-aid off on this i think brie larson was fundamentally miscast for this role um and i i think part of the issue was like th- this film's production was very fragmented like she was cast before they even really knew what they were doing with the character um like the delays in hiring direct in directors was that was marvel trying to figure out what they were even doing so they could pre- you know present scripts and story ideas you know to try and woo, woo in, try and woo in potential directors and but she was cast like you know like a year before that so like her and you saw that with, with, with like Endgame, which was filmed before this, where the Russos didn't even really know what her character was, and so what like whatever the character became, like it, it wasn't like Brie Larson was cast with that in mind, and like she is a fantastic actress, like just just to push back on all the the idiots who were, who were yammering before the film came out, she's fantastic. I, I just watched uh, Short Term Twelve last year, and she's wonderful, but. I I don't think she's able to I like she is fantastic in indies but I think she's just completely out of her element in a film like this. A- every moment in this movie like there are occasional moments she's sort of like when, I think when she's with Sam Jackson I think he I think she kind of like he just he just allows her to come alive a little bit and have a bit more fun but even then she's super subdued but when she's by herself she's really do, not doing anything. Like the character is so dead 
for so much of this film, and I don't, I, I, I don't like bashing on actors. Um, you know, they're 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 all they're all trying, and and it's obviously an incredibly, you know, you you it's it's very vulnerable. They're put they're putting themselves out there for us to judge, and I I, I don't want to just bash on her, but I just think she was miscast, and just when she's by herself, or even when often with other people, or or just giving exposition or trying to quip. I feel she just is profoundly uncomfortable in this kind of role and just isn't able to give it any measure of like extra life or fun or just, or even emotion for most of the movies. She's just really flat and dull, unfortunately Um, for, for like 90% of this film. There are, there are a couple moments that I do. I, I think she has a great smirk and like, when she's just kind of like looking at things like from the outside, just like kind of judging people with this goofy little smirk is, is, is kind of cute. Um, yeah, as I said, occasionally with um with Sam Jackson, she kind of comes alive, and oh, the, the smile that she gives Stan Lee oh, is so oh. adorable and it just warms the heart. But I just like when you look at Marvel casting, they have been so on point. Like even when the films are bad, like Iron Man Two, or uh, not necessarily, necessarily bad, but you know, not very good, or Throw the Dark World, these actors you know, are just going above and beyond, and like I. You can watch the movies and you can have so much fun, even if the movie is complete gibberish, because these these characters are just bring so much you know gravity and force to the films. And I feel like this is the first real just miscasting of a character where she just doesn't bring anything as an actress to the role, and it's it's just and if the you know with, with the lead not performing, it just brings everything else in the film down with it. Yeah, so this is an area that i actually won't really fight you on um like i don't know if if it's miscasting because like i'm not convinced that she can't be great in these kinds of movies because like the weird thing to me it's a simple fact that not everyone can like you know colin Colin farrell he's a fantastic actor but you put him in like total recall or you know various they try to stick him in blockbusters and just he just he just kind of goes like dead eyed for some reason. It's weird. Yeah, well, it's, but even with him, I because I'm an enormous Feral fan. Oh, absolutely. I, I even think like Go see in, the gentleman. He's amazing in it. In a in certain hands, you know, even I think the difference is that it's not that some people can't. It's that there are people who can, and they just need the right script and the right director. And then mm-hmm. there are people who it just comes naturally to. Like, like you I, don't, stick I don't Robert Downey Jr. or Tom Cruise in yeah. anything. And they're magnetic. I don't. I don't think Chris Pine can show up onto a set and not just ooze charisma. You know, like there, there are certain people that it's just natural. And so I don't think. Yeah, if an actor is good, I think any actor in the right hands can lead movies like this. If like, unless it's just. I mean, there's. I you know I don't think Steve Buscemi is ever gonna you know lead a, you know a, a franchise I, like. This. I think he could though. Well, you know what? Now I'm doubting myself because I would absolutely watch that. So I I don't think that she couldn't lead a film like this because none of the problems I have with her here feel like indicative of of her as an actress. Like there are scene based on other things I've seen her in, there are lines here that are poorly delivered that I'm like it 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 isn't that this is the wrong kind of like this is just bad delivery from a person who shouldn't have had that kind of bad delivery. Like it's it's not because this particular scene is like some sort of big heroic action comic book movies like it's like no it, any any dramatic actor should be able to to sell this line and and so i still th- i think that if you know they're getting a new director for the for the second one i think in the right hands she can lead something like this um 
because like I said, some of my issues with her are not even specific to the genre or to the, it's just like, why? I don't know why anybody like it just, I just wrote down some examples. So it didn't just sound like I was talking about random things, but like whenever she's first seeing the Supreme intelligence and, you know, she's wondering why it's this person. She's like, I don't even remember who this person was to me. Like yeah. everything is so like, what, there are moments she and can't do exposition not at all it sounds bad. and like i don't i i usually try my best to avoid like just blatant hyperbole but there are moments that are like full-on like attack of the clones level of like <laughs> like a everything he said to me was a lie or i mean natalie I, portman another absolutely fantastic actor that kind of floundered in a Oh yeah, there you go. And so it's like, yeah, this isn't like you. I I think Brie Larson is fantastic. Even I didn't, I didn't like the film Free Fire, but I thought she was pretty great in that. Like mm-hmm. she she was genuinely entertaining. She gave all like it was. She was even fun in Kong Skull Island. That's true. Yeah. Like and so that's. I I think it's even it's beyond the kind of I don't know. There something happened in this production. I don't know what it like. I don't know why, but there are just various line deliveries where I'm like, this is just not working i would guess it's bowden and fleck but like they got they got a really good and maybe it's i don't know maybe it's the the amount of time these other actors have spent but like ryan reynolds is really good in mississippi grind and and ben mendelson is like at his absolute peak in that movie i think it's it's you bringing directors who are completely new to the blockbuster game and not having an actual script like real script to work with and having to, I just, I just feel like it was an actress that wasn't ready for this, or at least, you know, or doesn't, who can't bring it entirely on her own. And then, you know, directors who were, you know, kind of thrown into the deep end and, you know, lack of a, it just feels like a confluence of all kinds of different things that just led to the kind of the misfire of the performance, unfortunately. And like, I, I don't, I, I don't know where to go without just jumping to another dislike because I, I well I I think you know just something because I I'm okay if we if we continue to get some of our complaints out of the way I mean uh, all <laughs> pretty much all I have for this one are complaints unfortunately okay well then I'll get uh, my complaints out of the way so that I can bring some positivity here all right <laughs> but like I mean just as a as a natural transition you know like we said she can't deliver exposition this film also has just bad exposition you know like it, it's it is that the case of like you have to have the right people who you know harrison ford's line like you can write this stuff but you can't say it something that i thought that marvel's been really good at and has good examples of is the exposition because it's they'll find ways of like it's, this is just a huge exposition dump but they'll fold it into the narrative in ways that make sense like i think one of the best uses of this or write would, it in the voice of a character yeah I think like the most immediate example that my mind brings is, is like the first Thor, you know, we're, we're being told about all of this, but it's because like, these are stories being told to, to kids and we can, we can recognize them as stories because, you know, Dr. Selvig himself says like, I grew up on this. Like it's. Oh yeah. Like the, the scene on the rooftop between Chris Hemsworth and Natalie Portman, where it's, it's, it's all exposition, but it's also this very sweet, tender moment between, you know, two people with enormous chemistry you know, who are, you know, falling in love with each other. Yeah. And I, one of my favorite, or no, sorry, excuse me. One of my least favorite lines ever in film is, is uh, whenever a character will say, you know, this, it's just, it's like, I'm thinking of whenever she's like, uh, like 
does it has anyone ever seen the supreme intelligence and he's like oh yeah no blah 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 like no one can ever see the supreme intelligence they just see blah 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 you know this it's like well then why is she asking why is this convert like why is why is she approaching this conversation like somebody who's never been on this planet like so many of the conversations they have there feel like they're being asked by total outsiders and like they're all ending with like the oh you know this or, or like like we've been over this before this I mean, we, this is not done well why why are these if both parties understand the information given then and it, it's even on the part of like the supreme intelligence when they when she's talking to to veers and she's like uh oh we're hunting down the scrolls because the scrolls have done like is all of, like are all of the conversations on Cree just a series of history lessons because that's the only conversations i'm seeing from anybody yeah it's like it gets a bit better once Samuel Jackson comes in because he just read the cookbook and it's it's you know amazing you just you just want to listen to it and he can deliver you know any well he can't deliver George Lucas dialogue but he can deliver just like any other well, dialogue he can deliver it in a way that's so bad that it's just incredibly quotable <laughs> a Sith Lord yeah take a seat young Skywalker that was a good delivery I was about uh, to say whoa 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 that's great. Yeah, uh, I don't know where I was. Yeah, like, um, okay, now we're on the subject of, subject of Kree. Is it just me or is the entire status of the galaxy really uh, murky and undefined? Like, I don't feel like we got a good picture of either Kree culture and like, or like what, like of what, obviously there needs to be some murkiness because, you know, we, we find out that she's on the wrong side of the war. But even then, after that revelation comes, I still just have a, I just don't really understand what the galaxy looks like and what's happening and who's who and why and what and where. Like, I think uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, I think James Gunn did a really good job of making you Xandar and Rowan. They they feel like real factions and real people with history and just everyday life. Whereas I feel like on the Kree homeworld, it, it doesn't feel like a real place. And it feels all very, very arch and stiff and just we're filming on sets and we just want to get out of here. And... That kind of go and that, that that hurts the film later on when we have the revelation that you know the scrolls are actually the good guys, the Kree are the bad guys. Because I guess like I didn't understand the conflict before, and I understand even less now as we're going to the climax. And it's just it's really hard to be invested in it. Yeah, I think a mistake that this film makes, uh, and this is on just a, a script level, is we we should have been on Kree for a longer amount of time. We should have spent a lot more time with her and Jude Law's character. Uh, for a certain reveal to work but we should have yeah we should have gotten a better sense of their culture and a better sense of like we we should rewatch this film and then like during these opening scenes that be able to think to ourselves oh that's why they need this to happen like the motivations and this like a, a lot of these things just don't make a whole lot of sense and what's weird is i i thought that we were gonna get a lot more of like this uh thousand years of kree justice you know that that we've heard an incredible character, well, like an okay character with an incredible performance monologuing about, you know, like... I do not forgive them for killing my father. Or his father before him. Like, they're just... It, like, it's all... It's ridiculous, but it still fuels, like, history and culture. Yeah, and, and you know, I talk about this a lot, especially on these episodes, of this idea that, you know, whenever you're making a film in a franchise, part of what you're accepting is the responsibility to operate within the parameters and the bounds set by the franchise. Uh, and I think part of that is to look at like this 
first of all, to like look at the immediate, which is that Kree have already been introduced and and expand upon that a little bit. And this felt very divorced from like the kind of like the Kree feel very overtly threatening to the rest of the galaxy. Like Xandar, just listening to Xandar talk about the Kree. I don't understand how it can be that out in the open. Well, there was a treaty and stuff like Ronin was a, a, a rogue. But the thing is, the people who signed the treaty were even like, oh, like they they seemed not too th- like it wasn't like this was them reaching out. It still seemed as if like the Xandarians were like oh, freaking Cree, you know, yeah. like th- this this freaking species is insane. And I don't feel as if a a species with that kind of persona could operate and fool the people the way they have whenever you've got just like, you know, quirky people ready to smirk at anybody like uh, like um, Veers walking around. Like it, it just it doesn't feel like it lines up. And then the other thing is just you have to be able to operate. And this this is a bit unfair because this is this is the MCU at large. Is it feels like. We've got so many different species that each movie adds and like all these huge galactic conquests, but it just it never feels like any of these galactic battles ever cross it. Like, you know, you've got everything with um, with the Dark Elves and the Asgardians and you've got like the the Chitari out there and you've got the scrolls. And although I, you know, I guess at least it's a big galaxy. This, yeah. And, you know, to, to this movie's credit, it is at least not introducing a new one, but we, you know, the Kree were already existing. So, so maybe it has a bit more going for it there, but um, yeah, I, I, I just think of a movie like uh like man of steel where, you know, like by the time we leave Krypton, like we, that place meant something, you know, mm-hmm. we may have been at the, you know, we were there for its destruction but even during its destruction, I got such a genuine sense of its culture, you know, and and yeah, I didn't get a lot of that from Creed. Although a positive I will say is I really do like the way, like the visuals of it. I think it's a really, really cool looking sci-fi city. Yeah. Um, and you talked about we needed more time with the Creed, and I, I, I was timing. I think like she gets captured. I think like between fifteen and twenty minutes in, she's captured. And then is is separate from Jude Law and and you know Cree influence for the entire movie up until the climax, and I think that really I think like the relationship between Yon Rog and Danvers or Veers should have been you know the core of this film, and it just isn't because he's not in the movie except for like every fifteen twenty minutes she'll like make a phone call to him, and he'll be all worried and whatever, and then it'll end and we'll just go back to the you know to the the plot and the treasure hunt. And like just this, it's it 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 purports to be a story of you know this woman breaking free from this control, but the 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 force of control and and subjugation is so just absent from the film that yeah. it just doesn't register. That's that brings me to one of my biggest criticisms. Uh, I guess we'll just continue this theme of like. All of the criticisms we agree with. Jude Law's character, Von Rock, like, this character doesn't work. And what I was thinking is, you know, I wasn't thinking this obviously on the first viewing, but on the second viewing during his beginning thing, everything he said is like, is just good advice. 
Like, yeah. he never says anything that's wrong in their initial training. This idea that, like, and what's funny is it's it's not even like it's not even that it, it what he's saying is is true, but he's being presented as a villain. It's like what he's being what he's saying is being true, and just got said by Tony Stark in Spider Man Homecoming. You know, like if you need the suit to be great, then you don't deserve the suit. I feel like they're both giving very similar lessons of like you can't rely on this. You have to learn how to exist and operate without it. The movie is ostensibly what I've got is the movie is ostensibly saying that like the larger theme that they're trying to get at is women are told that their emotion like their emotions are weakness and they can't do things because they're emotional and like and so this is pushing back and seeing emotions can be a strength. It's a good thing. But which is all fine and good, but but the problem is the voice of oppression is just saying basic truths like a soldier does need to have their emotions under control like it, it, it and it, it, it's especially like if you're learning a martial like martial arts and all it's it's all of that is about control learning to master yourself it's the, the, the control is what separates adults from children like it doesn't mean you can't have emotion like and so the idea that that he, he is so horrible because he's telling her that she needs to learn how to fight without the power which good thing he taught her that because there's an entire scene where she has to fight without her power and it's like it's like the film is presenting this as so terrible and bad but it's all just common sense and it, it even like i said it even it he's presented as bad for saying she should learn to fight without her powers and then the film has her have an entire fight scene without her powers and he just it doesn't recognize that the, the, the eternal contradiction there but just, and the, just the entire like what he tells her in those moments about like if she is losing control and you know blasting her mentor across the room, you're just gonna be a bad soldier. It's just it just it doesn't work because the only the only or the majority of the examples they give of this sort of nefarious control that that's being exerted over her is is like good or at least neutral things. Yeah, and like the the two big ideas that I see in this film is. You know, with the the themes itself is, is exactly what you're talking about. This idea of of subjugation and of you know being told to be in check and this and that, like keeping the emotions in check. And it, w- it would make a lot more sense if she wasn't a soldier. Yeah, making her a soldier, like control and keeping you and you know uh, conforming to a command structure. Like that's all just that's all just normal soldier things. So, like if like there are there are a lot of films about you know. Humanity meets the press, like you know, like nineteen eighty four. There's a lot of books, or you know, the uh, Equilibrium, where it's about emotional suppression and you know, our humanity being crushed out of us. But like that, what those films do is they they show the effects in all of life and 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 on people who aren't soldiers who just you know is it, it, coming into their normal day life where they just they can't even live or feel. Whereas in this film, it doesn't. Nothing about it is suggesting that she can't, you know, be a human and be emotional every other day of the week. It's just when she comes into training, she has to control herself. And like it, it, it's, it never really feels like this is getting, you know, this is getting to her soul. Because I mean, she jokes her. She and Jude Law have a really like a playful relationship with each other. Like they're fun together. Or, or when they're with, when she's you know just bantering with all the other Kree soldiers on the ship for the mission. <laughs> with one of my favorite lines, like it's funny because objectively speaking, you are quite handsome. He is. Yeah, like the yeah, it is like that idea doesn't really land. And then 
the other one is, you know, the her arc itself, which is one of like uh, liberation and self discovery, and and that and, and the weird thing is, we bring up Star Wars all the time on non Star Wars episodes, but like I've, it, it, I know that I'm not against these ideas on principle because there are other examples of these that I'm really like that I like a lot. I mean, with the idea of of this this. Um, the need to suppress the emotion and being told like that's that's the prequels completely and despite the fact that you know, like you know those aren't always very great i think those ideas are very well done within those films like this idea mm-hmm. of uh you know the inability to have uh attachments you know compassion being looked down on and that's that all works incredibly well within that narrative and the reason it works well is because the where it's coming from is portrayed as very clearly flawed the jedi order and the prequels have created their own problems and like anakin skywalker is a result of the inherent flaws of their philosophy and so whenever they're t- whenever they're forcing this emotional subjugation it makes sense that we will fight against it because where it's coming from is so clearly corrupt and is coming from the wrong. Uh, and then the other, ex- like this, you know, her her arc has been criticized by a lot. And I, I think, you know, pretty fairly because it isn't so much an, an arc as, as much as it is just like, I'm, you know, a lot of these, when you think about like a lot of these great arcs within this, it's these, you know, it's Thor, it's Doctor Strange, it's Iron Man, it's, it's getting better, there's growth. And Captain Marvel's arc really is just like, hey, it turns out I'm way cooler than I ever thought I was. Um, yeah, like I've got way more power, or or a sense of like I guess self discovery of you know finding her true identity, which you, I guess is the same thing. Yeah. But and the thing is, it I don't even have an inherent problem with that because thinking of going back to Star Wars yet again, Ray's entire arc is this like forging her own path, discovering her identity for herself, and like creating creating by choice her own place you know it's or in captain america you know in the mcu he's a character that doesn't change like like you know, Be- uh, becky was saying you know the thing like I, I, my point was never that the character doesn't is bad because the character doesn't change it's because my issue is that the character just isn't a character like there's there is just so little given at all start to finish in the movie and like the the, the movie is about her discovering who she is you know she she had her life and an identity lost or stolen in this case and suppressed. And so, you know, she's going through the film. She's, you know, finding out very, very much like uh, the born identity. I think, you know, very, very similar kind of amnesia thing where she's discovering her identity and ultimately, you know, gets the moment where she gets all the information. I think probably one of the, probably the most emotional scene in the movie where the uh, Lynch is, you know, telling her who she is. But even then at the end of the film, we only have like the vaguest idea of who and what she is just as a person. We're just, we're just told a lot of things about her. You know, you're the strongest person I've ever met, but what, what, what does that mean? We don't, we never see her, you know, need to be strong or actually challenged emotionally. You know, she's challenged physically. And since she's Superman, she can, you know, flick it all away. And there's no, there's no challenge there, but just as a person, as you know, an emotional being, like, what does she desire? What, like, what, what, why does she want to become a pilot? Why does, what does she fear? Like all the questions that we ask of every other character, you know, the, the, the things that make them great. The, the reason that Ray is a fantastic layered character, you know, where you could just endlessly dig through is just because there's so, there's so much, you know, f- 
there's just flaws and idiosyncrasies and fears and contradictions that just we we aren't given any of that here. She's just just there's nothing under the surface for her aside from this this va- very vague idea of suppression and you know breaking free of that. But the suppression is never really real for her because the very first scene we meet her, she's blasting her mentor across the room. She she's already got this enormous rebellious streak. You know, twenty minutes in, she separated, and when, the moment she calls back and he tells her, you know, come back, you know, stay there. She just blows him off again. Like, I'm going to do what I want. And so, like, she isn't, there's no real, the suppression isn't really real. It's, it's, like, there's, it hasn't gotten to her. So I feel like for this art to work, she would have had to have been so much more ingrained and subservient. And I think had a, a real emotional relationship with Yonrog, you know, that line, you know, that's my blood in your veins, where, he has this kind of twisted father, brother, owner, just kind of like almost like he owns her kind of thing, which is, you know, I think a very, which is a fascinating idea that's never really explored. Like th- there needs to be just constant stress where breaking free of that has to wreck her and it has to be painful. And like just, just the scene in Infinity War where, where um, Gamora thinks she's killed Thanos and she just breaks down weeping for a, what could be any one of a, a dozen different reasons like that's that that is a scene of you know someone who was who was oppressed and you and you psychologically destroyed by this character or like even the, just the sequence from Guardians of the Galaxy you know, I will no longer be your slave that is a more powerful story of emancipation in those you know 5 seconds than what we get in Captain Marvel yeah and something like to me the only it, it trying to find a character who's like where the conflict is external like doing that is really really hard there's very few characters you can think of like captain america is this this kind of like anomaly atticus finch atticus finch you know like these these kind of characters are few and far between so often the great characters are the characters where the the true conflict are these internal conflicts and you know like it's you know people always criticize um Superman for being like oh you know it's it's hard to care about any of this because he's Superman like that argument Which is, is is a true thing but yeah but it needs you know, it needs to be handled with a lot of care and, and also that I've always thought that one is kind of dumb just because like he also fights generals out like power levels are always sca- scaled you know like Batman will fight street level thugs and Superman will fight uh like galactic threats when in like in reality. The, Sometimes I think like the the bad Superman movies are the ones where he oh. is completely overpowered and there's no threat, and he's fighting like businessmen, you know, Lex Luthor, or an island, or whatever. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the comics do this much much better, and that like the people that you're fighting are are scaled to fight you. So in reality, it's like it's the exact same level of threat against the 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 hero. Like we can't just compare the hero to ourselves and like. Anyways, that that's getting into me defending Man of Steel, which I'll do for far too long. But uh, it's funny because like the, the, a lot of quotes from the writers they're talking about trying to avoid the Superman problem, and I think they just dive headlong into the Superman problem. Unfortunately, well then to to maintain this Man of Steel uh, connection, this movie dives into that problem by not internalizing the conflict, and that's why. And maybe this, you know, like Superman purists will forever hate me in these movies. That's why I love Man of Steel and uh, BVS so much, is because I couldn't care less if how strong he is, because all of his conflicts are internal. You know, like the the moment where he's facing against Zod and Zod's offering it, 
and he he turns his laser eyes off long enough to say you know krypton had its chance and then he destroys the world engine like it, it, power levels are meaningless there because ultimately the conflict lies within the person and and captain marvel doesn't really have that she doesn't it, it, what, what's also weird is the movie kind of set set her up to have it like the the reveal that she's been partaking in mass genocide should hit a lot harder than it does in the movie because we kind of get over it and start fighting really like fighting and having fun like 10 minutes after we realize that you've probably murdered hundreds if not thousands of like innocent people this is this is part Um, of where you know a very unclear picture of the conflict hurts it yeah and and so like maybe if they wanted to to test her allegiance more they, they kind of did but like maybe if she there's a there's a Black Mirror episode that handles a very similar situation, but it does it amazingly. And the conflict is this idea of like trying to fool your like after the reveal, fooling yourself into thinking that it is fine. Like you know, a movie that does really well is Jojo Rabbit. You're discovering you're oh, on the well, wrong there side you of go. conflict. One hundred percent there. And so like the conflict is trying to delude yourself into thinking you're on the right side because. If that's not the case, how do you live with what you've done? And that is an incredible conflict. And one that's set up here, it's just it's never capitalized on. Yeah. Um, and I, I think just moving more into that Superman problem, I think like the last half hour of this movie is deathly dull for me at least. Um, because there is no there's not there's not only is there absolutely no emotional or intellectual or thematic challenge to her. They, there's not even a physical challenge like a physical challenge could at least you know give us decent action but she just she just kills everybody and it's so like she just belly like belly flops through a, a spaceship and it's fine because nothing could touch her like they, they don't even give her anything resembling a challenge so she just spends the, you know, the final 15 minutes of the, of the climax just killing and destroying everything without any actual opposition so you just it's 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 like they, they they fall into like the emotional problem the, the, just this emotional vacuum but also just from an action film standpoint it this film fails because it doesn't give us any actual challenge to the characters it's it's the it's just like a it's like a video game on easy mode so thematically and emotionally i i don't give it a pass but visually i kind of do just like i i do have fun with this ending like whenever uh no doubt starts playing. I I really like that sequence. I think it's a lot of Which fun. Which sequence that? The like the ending scene whenever just a girl comes on. Oh, I hate that fight scene so much. <laughs> I really like that scene a uh, lot. For, oh, for me, like also, I think just we should move into the direction uh, from Anna Bode and Ryan Fleck. I just I think the the I think the direction of this film is very very poor. I think the cinematography is pretty is just very bland overall. And the editing is bad. Like, just the the edit of this film does not drive the story at all. Just it's it's very flat and kind of limp. It's just we're cutting because the camera's pointing at that thing. It just there it, it doesn't feel like there's any intentionality behind the cinematography or the editing. So this the film just kind of lumbers along the entire time. And I think the action in particular is pretty poor. It's either this kind of choppy or just muddled. Like it's for some reason they shot a really cool action sequence in a bunch of fog and darkness and. Uh, you know that that first big sequence, and then as we go, it's just 
they, they none of the direction just ever adds anything to the action or just or any scene in particular. Okay, not any scene. There are two decent scenes I think of direction. Um, one is the the expl- the explosion of the uh, the energy core in the spaceship, which is this really crazy surreal image with some really cool slow mo where you know where she she is infused with the uh, the Tesseract power, and then after after she gets the revelation and she has the flashback remembers. And she runs outside, and this really is like at sunset, and this, this kind of nervous handheld cinematography as she's kind of you know pacing around, and everyone's kind of coming around her, talking, you know, talking, trying to figure out what to do next after this bombshell's been dropped. I think there's actually some interesting, engaging cinematography and direction there. But overall, for the rest of the film, and especially in the action, I just find it so deeply uninspired. I noted that scene as well, both as a positive and a negative, like positive, just it, I'm bringing it up again. That, that scene to me felt very man of steely in the way it was shot. Mm-hmm. of just like that very like nicely composed, but still handheld. But I, I say negatively just because it visually, it feels very disconnected from the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. Like the film has never looked that point. And I mean, I guess it's because she's just in an incredibly emotionally fragile state there with all of the revelation, which actually listening to the, uh, to the behind the scenes stuff, that that happened because they you know they were they they had to get this shot before sundown, so they just pulled out a bunch of handheld. And I feel like that is where the indie filmmakers were able to kind of come out and be themselves. Where I feel like for the rest of the movie, they they felt like they had to be big blockbuster directors and just lock everything off and you know do it very straightforward. Um, but for me, like I actually do like the action scenes. Like I like the the fight on the train cutting between. Uh, her like I like just flip when she's on the side and she flips up and then the the camera pans down like in a single take where the, the camera will come down and then you'll you'll see Sam Jackson drive into the frame and like just cutting between him trying to keep up with that and the fight on top of it I think is actually pretty fun and and there's bits during that last uh action scene that I do like a lot where like the gun gets thrown out and it it feels almost like this heightened kind of James Gunny vibe where like the can't it's it's very clearly just in someone's hand and it'll get thrown and the camera will like it's like someone's just bending over like pointing out the gun and then looking back up as if like the camera is a, just a set of eyes looking around um like i i feel like it's it's somewhat engaging and there there are cool different images and stuff um but i i think what lets me down during the action scenes more so than than like just the technical aspect of it is is more of just this this isn't meaning too much. I know that the movie is acting as if it's meaning quite a bit, but you know, I personally, she seemed to have a pretty good life to me. The the worst she had it was being told in a military setting that, you know, Hey, don't be crazy. I'm just thinking about it. Like, just imagine if, if somebody like, it would be like pulling a knife on your drill instructor during hand to hand combat, you know, like blasting across there. It's the fact that she could do that, and they're equipping the next one's like, man, you got it way easier than like modern day like Earth set military. So that that's why those scenes fail ultimately for me. And connecting the power thematically to emotion doesn't really work because Brie Larson's performance, you know, almost universally throughout the film has no emotion. Um, like there, there's one, there's one really good, or a couple really good scenes. But the, the one really good scene from her. Is where she's in the the uh, the file the the archives of the Shield base, and she's reading the um, reading through you know all the files, and she finds a picture of herself, and 
is just kind of the camera in her face and she's just going through like these waves of emotion just where she's finding out this element this kind of lost truth about herself where like I think where she's actually able to give a good performance but otherwise like I feel like this character for a film about the suppression of emotion you need to have a character who can be completely emotionless while still radiating all the pain and confusion and frustration like through their eyes like 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 acting multiple things at once or uh, Adam Driver as Kylo Ren we keep going back to Star Wars but like think like when he's the scenes where he's like standing there stony faced as um mm. as Snoke is yelling and ranting like even though he's his face is blank you are seeing a world of feelings in his eyes and in his face. Adam Driver is the greatest actor to come out of this decade, so that only makes sense. But like, like you need, but that's what we needed for this yeah. character because it's about suppressed emotion. So we have to, we have to see that emotion, even though they're hiding it and not showing it. We need Christian Bale from Equilibrium, who gives an incredible performance. Somehow. Yeah. So like, we just if it's it the fact that this is about the suppression of emotion just does not register because. She's just not giving off any emotion, you know, either on the surface or underneath. And so I don't I don't believe that she's suffering inside. And then at the end, it should be an emotional crescendo. And she's like, you know, you know, my my, whatever, you know, you said my emotions make me weak, but they make me strong, like some very generic line like that. And this should be just like emotional crescendo of, you know, she's finally having this revelation and she's free and it's just just exhilarating and heartbreaking and just all these swirly emotions. And she is just fine. And like, she has that scene with the Supreme leader. She blasts out and then she goes and talks to her friends and she's just like completely normal and blank face, completely level voice. There's no sign that she just had the biggest emotional revelation of her life 30 seconds ago. You can tell us all you want that emotions are awesome and they make her stronger, but the character has you can't tell us that we have to feel that you have to display that through everything through the the, the performance the, the the music the cinematography the and, and and all of that and the film doesn't just doesn't have any emotion so you, you you can't it's just telling us to feel things that we should that this is happening inside the character without ever actually giving it to us you know what other movie had an incredible crescendo crescendo of emotional liberation jojo rabbit jojo rabbit <laughs> let's talk about jojo rabbit yes like i feel the the dramatic core of this film is mostly non is either non-existent or just self-contradictory and just completely i don't understand how this happens like you have the writer of inside out and the good dinosaur i love the good dinosaur it's awesome people completely misunderstood what that movie was about uh like you have great pedigree like, like i from all i haven't seen any of odin and flex work but they seem to be like really good indie directors uh Bray larson you know obviously fantastic very emotional actress and we get to it all comes together and there's just the the, the film is just lacking a soul it, it's so weird yeah yeah it's i feel like we covered 90 percent of this film in that kind of in that rant right there uh, is there other things you wanted to talk about uh yeah so it's like I've done mostly complaining. And the thing is, I yeah, I'd be quite happy that I'd be able to keep you, <laughs> keep you in that headspace all this time. I don't like what you're doing to me, Gabe. Manipulating you like Yon Rock. In that we've <laughs> just had our conversation like any other day we normally would have, and really, I'm still just free to be myself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly like Yon Rock. Um, 
I so despite all the the negativity I have, there is what what I do like, and this is this is one of the elements that I I disagree with in one of the comments where they said it, the movie had a weird like didn't really strike a tone or find a tone. Um, I felt like it had a tone that that it was nothing. Yeah, see, I I actually find this movie's tone and overall vibe like intellectually i'm i'm aware of all of these problems as they're happening but in the moment i i just have a lot of fun with this movie like just breaking it up section by section um, especially when she gets to earth like that initial thing the when when the camera turns and young sam jackson is there like i love that shot and i love just that smile and his just the sense of fun he has in that initial bit and then you see that she's telling the truth, and so like he's got to be after her. And then you you cut to the bit of Coulson being like, "Well, uh, I'm still here, and you're gone." And speaking of Coulson, what a waste! There's so many great actors here in this film that are given nothing to do. Well, anyways, I think that part's fun, <laughs> and I like the the chase scene, like that that whole sequence to me, and you know the everything with the the blockbuster, like it's that's I I enjoy all of that. And then whenever they meet up at that like at the bar a delivery from her what's weird is her performance here was the opposite of what i thought it was going to be i thought that she was going to sell the crap out of all of the dramatic stuff and it would be like the superhero kind of like either heroic or funny lines that she'd mess up on and it was instead she messed up on both see i disagree there i think she messed up on 90 percent of the dramatic stuff but i actually like her when she's just quipping around i think she's I, I think there's a level of like just an amount of playfulness that she brings whenever she's not having a deliver exposition or dramatic lines that I really like. Like whenever they're proving to each other that they're who they are and she shoots the jukebox, she's like, a scroll couldn't, or yeah, a scroll couldn't do that. There, there, there is like a disconnected snarkiness that could, that does come through sometimes that is fun. Yeah. And like, I really like the, this moment of where like I both time in the theater and then rewatching, I just have this big smile on my face as, yeah, is that line of thinking, like you don't tell my boss, so I won't tell yours, and then they both just like start laughing at each other, and it's, I don't know, like that that vibe, and pretty much everything at the Shield facility, you know, like uh, you could, uh, you know, you could have done that this whole time, and you watched me play with the with tape or whatever, and she's like, yeah, I just I wanted to give you a try. That there's all of these, there's an undercurrent of massive thematic problems that I am always consciously aware of. But sequence to sequence, I'm still having fun with the movie for some reason. Like, I really like the shield base sequence. I really like the the train chase. And despite the fact that, you know, belly flopping from ship to ship to I'm just a girl after the realization that, you know, you're, you've been uh, part of a genocide, despite the fact that that doesn't work, in the moment, I still have fun during that action scene. And I think a lot of it is just like I like the different dynamics set up. Like like I said, I am a big fan of Talos. I think her relationship with Fury is just a lot of fun, and I wish that it focused more on that buddy relationship. Um, I feel like all all these elements are very good in comparison to the rest of the film. Uh, but for me, they're just like when you look at the entire MC, they're still very lacking. I see. I don't know. Like I, I feel like I. I mean, I think there's a level of truth to that in that I, I think these are absolutely the the highlights of the film and and definitely receive the benefit just be, with that comparison. But I, I still find myself having more fun 
here than I do with with other other MCU films. And I think I do think part of that is because some of the like a lot of the fun just comes out of out of these like little conversations and looks and stuff. It's it's less of the you set up a line for me and then I'll give you my quip. And it's more of just like it's two people in a car or two people in a plane or two like just like talking with each other and like poking at each other and laughing and stuff. It's there is there is a vibe to it that feels a, a bit more unique within the MCU at this point. Like I I remember, you know, after uh or during a lot of like the initial reveal to to Fury and Coulson that that the scrolls are a thing. I was getting like men in black vibes, which is just like this kind of like this 90s sense of like there are stakes but we're all just kind of nonchalantly reacting to them and it's it's still fun regardless of how outlandish it all is and and I feel like that kind of feeling isn't like I don't know there's there's something super fun about it and it did feel like I mean which makes sense considering it takes place in the 90s there just seems to be this like very relaxed fun 90s sense to to a lot of this that I I think still feels a bit unique within the MCU is it just me or was there a massive missed opportunity in not playing up the horror paranoia aspects of scrolls oh yeah and that's the thing there's all of these problems where it's like you should have done this and what you're doing right now isn't the right thing to do but you've chosen to do this and for some reason i'm like i'm wishing you were doing something else but i'm still having fun with the thing you're choosing to do i agree with the first half of that sentence (laughs) yeah it's like this is like the, the film is handy like this idea of this really creepy idea of people of you know creatures that can become anything like who is who we don't usually trust like it's, it's like it's crafted for paranoia and and you know creepiness well they knew they couldn't follow up winter soldier so they didn't try i mean they should have gotten real filmmakers then hey whoa 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 they've made good movies maybe they have or they should have gotten filmmakers they can handle this kind of movie so i, I just feel like we should just kind of touch on a couple things um i think uh Lashana Lynch as Maria Rambo is, you know, probably the most emotionally successful thing about the movie. That scene, like, even though it's the same problem of people telling, uh, just t- looking at the camera and telling us about how awesome, you know, Carol is instead of actually showing us that scene where she, you know, is just across the table from uh, Brie Larson, just kind of, you know, going over her history is, is really affecting. I think her performance is quite good. Annette Benning is, I think, kind of wasted. Although, so, not to take it back neg- negatively, even there, there there were bits of her performance that felt weird. And I think part of it was, like, the editing almost made it feel as if her acting was, like, lesser than it was. There's, in the, the memory scene, I don't know why, I don't know if it's some weird thing that's, like, not even really there, but for some reason I just, it feels off to me. But, like, whenever she's like, wonderful view is in it, I prefer it from up there. You'll get there soon enough. Like, it wasn't to the level of, obviously, it wasn't to the level of something like buying flowers in the room scene where he's like, that'll be too, something. So, like, you're my favorite customer. Hi, doggy. Like, obviously, it's not that. I think that was intentional kind of video game cutscene. It was like, it was, try, it was trying to be unnatural and unnerving. I think. I think. See, it should have. It should have digressed in there because, well, the thing is, there is a level of digression to it where it, like, it feels like it becomes that and something becomes off. But the first time we see it, I feel like they shot it just to play it straight. Like, I'm not convinced that first time isn't the way it would have been viewed in in life. And it's just, it's cut weird. 
Like they're replying way too fast. Like I don't know. That conversation is just it feels weird to me. Although I gotta say that was another one of the other few element uh, you know elements or, or scenes where I got some like directorial creativity and vision. Like that the whole scrubbing through the, yeah. the memory sequence was very unique and interesting. I like that scene. I, I like the idea that the visual representation of her fighting it is her in her own memory acting against it. Like when she's in in the cockpit, you know, and she's trying to look when it's like, no, focus. And he's like forcing her to strain her eyes on the like the location. Th- those bits were cool. And I like, you know, going through all of her different memories, like from the past up to that. Like, yeah, I, I do enjoy that scene. That conversation <laughs> feels weird, but the, the larger scene I like. The, 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 the scroll just goes up and taps her head and the screen starts like flashing images. Like, I do that again. <laughs> Yeah, I think just another character that I think is really good at repressed emotion, but still showing everything would be Ryan Gosling in Blade Runner twenty forty nine. This that that was the performance that this film needed. I I really don't have much to say about this movie. Like I think you know Goose is just he's just there. He's just a cat. He doesn't do anything special. Well, he eats some people, but even then the scenes are kind of boring. Listen, the scenes of him doing that, like I already saw Groot impale like five people and slap them around and then smile like. I know what this scene looks like when it's done well. Okay, you can't fool me, Captain Marvel. They should have had some dogs. Like, then the movie would have been good. All right. Hey, I love cats. The cat wasn't the problem. Cats are always a problem. No, you're always uh, a problem. So, like, I feel like the film is actually like going back to this emotion thing. I feel like there's one last thing to say about it is the film is. I feel like it, it is succumbing to the very thing it's trying to fight. In the idea that the, I feel like the film is too uh, too cowardly to give the character actual emotion because they think if they give the character a, a real present powerful emotion or failures or weaknesses, they feel like that will weaken the character, which I feel like is is like essentially the film doing the exact thing they're supposed to be fighting. Like it's it's it, it, in its very d- DNA. I I I don't want to go too far into assigning motivations because when when you try to assign motivations to filmmakers, you're usually always wrong. But I I just I can't escape the feeling that the, that the film itself, despite trying to say that emotions are great and we should you know we should be free to have them, is also re- completely enmeshed in that 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 completely flawed philosophy that female characters you know, can't be emotional and that they they can't have weaknesses like it. That you know, in order for a character to be important and meaningful and and you know to have you know the first MCU female character, they they have they can't have flaws. Like I feel like the film itself is is the is the actual thing perpetuating that notion um by not giving us you know a fully rounded emotional, you know, human flawed character. It thinks it has to give us this perfect character with you, no real emotional baggage and no no weaknesses, no flaws, no failures. And like I feel like it, it, there's, there's this immense hypocrisy within the film, which I don't know if it was intentional or just an oversight or just something lost in translation. But like it's so bizarre that the film is doing that exact same thing, thinking that emotion and weakness and emotion and failure means weakness, when in fact I would like pointing to a character like Ray. I, I think like Danvers in this film is exactly what people so wrongly accuse the character of Ray in the Star Wars films of being. Whereas right, like you, you could just spend hours just peeling back the layers, and there's so much vulnerability and weakness and emotion and failure and just character flaws, and that is why her character is amazing because she you know, she has to fight through those. And this film doesn't give Carol anything to fight. 
Yeah, and like that's not to just derail the conversation into this, but that that's my issue whenever um, a lot of these films try to present these kinds of characters is I think it misses what often makes so many of these characters so famous is like when you think about the, the legendary characters in films, it's oftentimes it is very flawed. Like, you know, you've you've got your like the, the the most famous film characters are people like you know like Ma- Michael Corleone like these not and I'm obviously not saying that I you know we need that from all of these characters but we we've, we've seen what flawed characters look like in the MCU and how they work and I don't know like there you we want to watch that growth we need we need that kind of vulnerability and that kind of conflict and yeah I think and bringing back to the, that with the film that uh, the writer was involved in, uh, I think uh, Tomb Raider, the twenty eighteen film, like that character, I, I feel like in the action, it never it, the action never looked hard or difficult, and I, I feel like the, the, the that's the thing that Tom Cruise has discovered. Like, even though he's the most awesome person in the world that could do anything, he makes it look really hard and really painful, and he's, he's just constantly hurting himself throughout. And I think that's that done really well with, with uh, you know the character of Lara Croft where. Every single victory and step was earned through like just like literal blood and tears and just a character just radiating pain. Alicia Vikander is so underrated in that movie. She is amazing yeah. in that. So like just like if you could like showing weakness and and then showing the weakness and then showing the character taking that next step despite the pain despite the struggle that's where strength really is displayed if there's no challenge we don't actually see true strength is there anything else i think that's a kind of a decent place to kind of move towards our close the only thing i'd add is that sam jackson nick fury losing his eye to a stupid flurkin is one of the worst ideas in the history of bad ideas and i hate that scene and it retroactively makes all of the mysteries surrounding the eye in Winter Soldier worse. And it makes me, it makes me like, like irrationally angry. Like there's no reason that I should be as upset as I am. But it, I hate that so much. And this is just me. Like I hesitate to complain about this because Sam Jackson is one of the best parts of the movie. But does it feel like that character has really no crossover with Nick Fury as we know him in the MCU? No, he. I mean, he feels very different, and I feel like that's intentional. Like you know, we see him at you know just such an earlier stage, like you know, not at all, not not nearly as jaded. And I thought that we were gonna get like fun conversations like that in Endgame of just like Carol. <laughs> I imagine, and I can't begrudge a film for not shooting the scene that I shot in my mind, but I just I imagine this idea of like them needing to. Like proof that Carol knew Fury, and Carol would describe the Fury of a uh, of a uh, Captain Marvel, and they'd just be like, "Nah, you're not fooling us." <laughs> yeah, like it's just like th- there's nothing of like that 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 flinty eye and just heart of absolute steel that Fury has. Like I just don't feel any of that in the character. Like I get it, you want him to be funnier and happier and more jovial, but I feel like there needs to be at least some core of that. You know, re- you only call it, him Fury indomitable resolve and so it's so a movie into the this their section on the film score uh, did you have anything to say about it or did you listen to it at all uh i wasn't able to listen to it outside of the film uh nothing super memorable although i'm always a big fan of when we want to get super synthesizery with it so i liked a lot of the stuff on kree uh yeah there is a very kind of unique techno vibe to it but 
it's a weirdly low key like soundtrack um i i feel like like the film it's just it's very flat there's very little emotion um it just, it just it feels just very underdeveloped all throughout uh there are a couple tracks that i did enjoy um i think the actual the captain marvel theme is completely forgettable like even as i was listening to the score like two tracks after i listened to it i couldn't remember anything about it um but a couple tracks i thought were cool was uh, waking up and boarding the train it's that that kind of warbly techno sound a bit of just blade runnerish tone that it set for the creep planet was pretty cool photos of us was kind of was was hearkening back to that that that, that moody electronic vibe it was just very evocative kind of sounding like memory and um and uh yeah that's about it mm. <laughs> all, all the rest of the tracks i thought were is very forgettable uh, probably my least favorite score of the mcu so far so let's move into our final thoughts and star rating james so what, what are your final thoughts in uh What's your star rating for the film out of five stars, and how do you rank this in the rest of the MCU? Hey, so I give it three out of five. Uh, I like I said, if I could just try to summarize it, it'd be that at almost every moment in the movie, I am consciously aware of some some issue with it. You know, like it's the 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 emotional liberation doesn't land because you never felt any real emotional subjugation. Um, this character is confronted with the reality that she's been complicit with, uh, you know, mass genocide. And, you know, we react to it for a minute and then we rock out to some music and blow ships up and have fun. And so it's, 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 there's rarely ever a moment where I'm like, everything's coming together in, in doing something that I like without any sort of hesitation. And yet at almost every moment, I'm having some discernible amount of fun with it. Um, like I, as I said, I really, really like everything from Sam Jackson first showing up to the end of like the train chase sequence. I like a lot. I like pretty much everything at the shield um, plays like the, the fight in the, the library area and just their conversation, their conversation in the car, their conversation in the jet. Anytime Talos is on the screen, I just, I really love his presence. I, his body language, his delivery, like he's just a great character um so yeah i'm i'm always aware of something not working and yet i'm almost always having fun with it at the same time so so despite all of its flaws i still walk away being like ah that was that was fun i you know i actually enjoyed my time so getting into the uh the ranking uh, i have number 1 the winter soldier number 2 avengers number 3 infinity war number 4 civil war Number five, Guardians of the Galaxy. Number six, Iron Man. Number seven, Homecoming. Number eight, Iron Man 3. Uh, number nine, The First Avenger. Number 10, Thor. Number 11, Thor Ragnarok. Number 12, Doctor Strange. Number 13, Age of Ultron. Number 14, uh, Black Panther. Number 15, uh, Ant-Man. Number 16, Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2. Number 17, Iron Man 2. Number 18, The Incredible Hulk. Number 19, Captain Marvel. Number 20, Ant-Man and the Wasp. And number 21, Thor The Dark World. Yes, I've been pretty clear clear about my thoughts on this film. I feel like not only does it just fail to deliver on the most basic needs of a blockbuster, I think its core story is completely empty. And not just empty, but self-contradictory on so many levels. Um, It's just like all the good things you mentioned, I do agree with. But I feel like 
even those good things are still just subpar in the rest of the MCU. They, 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 like they're just like, yeah, they're mildly entertaining because the film is so freaking boring, but they don't really elevate it for me. They just kind of make it watchable. So yeah, so I give this film two and a half out of five stars. It just, it's, it's kind of a nothing movie for me, unfortunately. So for my ranking of the MCU, it's uh number one, Captain America, civil war two the Avengers, three guardians of the galaxy Four Captain America, the winter soldier, five Avengers infinity war, six, Iron Man, 7, Thor, 8, Age of Ultron, 9, Doctor Strange, 10, Spider-Man Homecoming, 11, Thor Ragnarok, 12, Ant-Man, 13, Iron Man 3, 14, The Incredible Hulk, 15, Captain America the First Avenger, 16, Ant-Man and the Wasp, 17, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, 18, Black Panther, 19, Iron Man 2, 20, Thor the Dark World, and 21, Captain Marvel. Oh, no. It's, it's, it's the movie that I least, like, if I had to pick any movie to rewatch. This would be the one I would at least want to rewatch at the MCU, unfortunately. Listen, I don't remember anybody as cool as Talos showing up in the dark. Oh, never mind. Loki's in it. Okay. Loki, uh, he got Idris Elba's in it. Yeah, but he's he's mostly a nothing character in that. He kills a spaceship with a knife. Like, there's some good stuff in that movie, at least. Yeah, but that head nod that you get from Talos is like worth its weight in gold. <laughs> All right, so going to the, the film's uh, reception and box office. Um. On its initial release, it earned $426 million domestically and $701 million in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of $1 billion and $128 million on its $150-$175 million budget, uh, which is a lot of money. It stands at number six for the MCU domestically after the four Avengers films on Black Panther and a number nine worldwide. <laughs> I remember all like all the clickbait sites and like this just hateful YouTube channels were like trying to figure a way to twist and explain just how this film wasn't a success. And now, like, like some were saying, like, you know, Disney was buying out theaters to art- artificially inflate <laughs> the box office. Like, they were just like it, similar to with the Last Jedi and Rise of Skywalker. Like, how could we make making a billion dollars feel like a flop? And it was it was just hilarious. The the attempt to try to get people to watch Alita instead of Captain Marvel, <laughs> just there there were so many people going out of their way to like. That was such a funny time to be alive. Yeah. So as far as like just a note on that box office, like. It had really good holds. Like a first across the first uh, ten weeks, it would often like either maintain its position in the box office or like rise back up in the rankings. Um, it went back up to number two at the box office on its ninth weekend. So like that that's essentially a sign that people liked the movie. Um, you know they're going back for rewatches. They're spreading positive word of mouth. You know, getting their friends to go. I think an element of that was was you know riding high off of Infinity War as as well as. Just it pisses me off at Marvel. Kevin Feige kept you know kept going out. You know, Captain Marvel is going to be a you know a vital part of Endgame, so you've got to go watch Captain Marvel, which that didn't pan out. But like, but ultimately, uh, just the fact remains that people people like this movie, and you know as much as it irks me <laughs> to admit that it was it was very well liked when it came out. I remember um just like you know in the film circles I was in, most people really enjoyed it, which and. I think that there was, there was an element of discontent among like big MCU fans, but I feel like the general audience is, for some reason, really latched onto this movie. Maybe it's because they're not as curmudgeonly as you. Maybe. Um, yeah, so it holds a 78% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 64 on Metacritic. Um, it's also worth noting that, that this was a, was a target for the very concerted efforts to troll and uh, review bomb like the audience polls on um, 
various sites. You know, they, they do with The Last Jedi, they do with Solo, they do with this. It holds a 43% on Rotten Tomatoes audience meter and a 3.5 out of 10 on Metacritic. Um, like, it, it's just like, that's ridiculous. Like, they're so, they're so obviously fake and, um, and, you know, artificially inflated. Did you, did you get the picture overall as well that, that, that people pretty much like the movie? Yeah. I, I mean, the thing, the thing is, it's, it's what I, there's a lot of people who like it a lot, but there's, I mean, if you just look at our comment section for this week, there's also a lot of people who weren't super big on it either. Which I, I feel like has kind of grown in, in the year and a half since. Yes. That's what I was going to say. Because you see those comments, and a lot of people are like, "I had a lot of fun with it the first time, but I kind of forget about it now." And so that's why I don't think that forty three percent is at all indicative. Is because even a lot of the people who aren't as high on it now, it was this this, it was that they were high at first, and it just kind of it wore off. You know, you you it it didn't leave a whole lot to last with you. And there's a there's a thing you, I've noticed with a lot of blockbusters, where just kind of recency bias, where all every re- the most recent film is is like the best film of the series like a lot of people saying that and then you know you come back a year later like oh yeah that was the movie that existed when has that ever not been true gabe <laughs> most of the times <laughs> currently with star wars and like i remember, I remember when we, we we did uh our underrated review of the greatest showman i talked about how like just that film made me kind of reconsider how i approached um how I approached films that I, I didn't like and everyone else liked. Because when this film first came out, I was just all over Facebook. It's like, this movie is not that good. Like, all the all the positive posts, I would just, you know, comment on them. And, like, you know, actually, just, you know, being that guy. And I, I remember watching The Greatest Showman, and there was the, um, just the, 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 the line, you know, it's a very cheesy scene, but the, the line from the creator telling me, you know, I never liked your show, but, I, but I, I know the people did. And just learning to appreciate the fact that even if a film, even if I didn't like a film, you know, it's giving joy to other people. It really kind of made me, made me back off. I think it was a similar thing with Black Panther, where I just spent a lot of time just arguing, debating over, it, and just after a while, I just kind of had to back off from that and just, you know, if someone asks me, I'll tell them, and if I have my own podcast, by golly, I'll rant and rave. But you know, just to be more willing to allow other people to enjoy the things that I didn't like, because you know, if a film is bringing joy to the world, that's a good thing. Agreed. So if you don't like Star Wars, shut up and let people enjoy yeah. it, in other words. But I, I will talk about how you're dumb for not liking Star Wars, though. I reserve my right to to do that. <laughs> I think you might have missed somewhere in my, in my talk, James. Um, no, no, no. If you don't like The Last Jedi, you are part of the problem with film discourse. James Hamrick, 2020, quote it. Okay. <laughs> All right, so on that note, that was our review of Captain Marvel. I uh, hope you enjoyed it, and if you did... Again, I'll ask, I'd like to ask you guys to please uh, give us a, a review on iTunes and a you know, rating. It would just be very helpful um, and definitely appreciated. Uh, you can also like us on Facebook. We're there as Franchise Geek Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram as at FranchisedPod. And you can find our other episodes at FranchiseGeekPodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? You can follow me on Letterboxd. I'm there as JL Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. You can also join both of us along with some other friends, uh, who have also been on the podcast over at uh, the Outer Rim, a Star Wars group. Despite uh, the nine-part saga ending now, there's still a lot to talk about. Clone Wars season seven. I was about to say we just got an incredible trailer for season seven that gave me goosebumps and made me want to cry. So there's still plenty to talk about over there. I'm getting some new announcements very soon. That's true. 
So I am also on Letterboxd. I'm there as Gabriel Green. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green, and I have a YouTube channel called Greenery01, where I put out these uh, film-based music videos. So next week, we are talking about the big one, Avengers Endgame. Uh, pack a lunch for this one, I think. <laughs> so until next week, we will see you uh, five years in the future. I have nothing to prove to you. <laughs> <laughs>